I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. On today's episode, you'll hear from a woman who was arrested, accused of sexual assault, and then acquitted after a judge deemed the allegations against her to be, quote, untrue, contrived, and unworthy of belief. So how did this all go down? How often does this happen? And what happens next as 36-year-old Jansen picks up the pieces of her and her family's life. You'll also learn about the history of the Children's Aid Society, which was brought to Toronto in the late 1800s by a man named John Joseph Kelso, who apparently was concerned with the number of homeless and impoverished children in the city at the time. But as you'll hear, he was also very concerned with animals. That's all coming up on Today in T.O. Could you imagine being told you can't be alone with your own kids? Could you imagine feeling like the people you're meant to trust have let you down? Could you imagine being accused of something so heinous that ultimately turns out to be untrue, contrived, fabricated? For this story, we're going just outside of Toronto. 36-year-old Ashley Jansen, who was working as a teacher's aide with the school board in Ontario, was accused of sexually assaulting a 12-year-old elementary school student. The claim referenced June 2018, but the complainant came forward in August of 2022. I'm not going to get into the details because they were proved to be false. But the Ontario court judge, Peter Tetley, stated that the lead detective on the case showed, quote, seeming unwillingness to question the veracity of the complainant, and that this should serve as a cautionary example when appropriate and available investigative steps are not pursued. But when it comes to Ashley Jansen, the damage has been done. The analogy she used for how she's feeling is that it's like a pillow exploded. And you think you've picked up all the feathers, but you just keep finding more of them everywhere. So in her words, here's what went down in August of 2022. There was a knock on our door from CAS um, and the, the only information we were given was that I couldn't be alone with my children. Uh, initially, with some strong fight from my husband, um, they directed me to move out of my home. Uh, I couldn't have contact with my kids. Uh, my husband obviously was very vocal about that not being realistic. Our youngest at the time was two, um, and I was the sole caregiver for her. Um, and so that was the initial meeting with CAS. We knew nothing uh, until a couple of days later when the CAS worker told us that there is a joint police investigation happening. Um, But to our, you know, loss of understanding, I suppose, they said that there was a joint investigation. Um, We had to sign safety plans that I couldn't be alone with my children. It was suggested that a third party move into our family home And if that wasn't possible, I move out. Um, My husband fought so that that wasn't the case. He would be the sole caregiver for our children, and I just could not be alone with them. This was before Jansen really knew what was going on. Children's Aid Services remained pretty tight-lipped over what was happening at this point. The only information they could really provide was that this was part of an ongoing police investigation. We were given the, the phone number for the detective who was doing the investigation my husband and I both called numerous times after the first week asking you know can 
this be expedited, expedited, our, our kids are being affected. I was put on leave from work. Um, and no one, you know, it was very tight lipped about what had actually, what the allegation actually was. Um, and in my career, I had been exposed to similar, uh, investigations. So I assumed it would be something along the lines of they would speak to coworkers, they would speak to, uh, supervisors, uh, it would all be unfounded and we'd be able to move on with our lives. Well, that was not the case in, in, in this situation. It took police three weeks to eventually arrest Jansen. And that all started with a phone call from a Durham Regional Police detective. Amanda Rabisha called me on a Tuesday night, September 20th, and said, can you come in? Uh, I want to have a discussion with you. Uh, and as naive as I am, I mean, Alan and I've had many discussions afterwards. That's not something you should ever do without speaking with a lawyer first. But I went in thinking it was going to be a open floor discussion about what the investigation was between CAS and, and Durham Regional Police. My husband and I arrived on Wednesday, September 21st, um, and I was arrested on the spot without any discussion. And so prior to the arrest, Jansen says she was given some more information. But leading up to this point, she really didn't know what it was all about. I was given a small piece of information in the three weeks I was waiting that it was in relation to a school I worked with in in Durham. Um, and I spent weeks, days, even like long nights thinking who could have possibly, what it could possibly be um, in the role of an EA at times, well, more often than not now, you're doing restraints, you're doing uh, classroom evacuations. Um, but this particular individual was not on my radar. And my initial thought was maybe someone complained that I did an improper restraint. Maybe there was anything. This, from every aspect of the term, destroyed, devastated, floored, this was so far out of my radar with the, the severity of the allegation, with the individual themselves, because I knew when, when I was given that name the day that I was arrested, I was, I was never alone with this, with this individual. He, they were dangerous. They assaulted me many times. They assaulted many staff. They intimidated people. They, there was zero opportunity. I, I, I never, ever... This was the last person on my who could this possibly have come from list. The alleged incident that an Ontario court judge, Peter Tetley, ruled to be, quote, untrue, contrived and unworthy of belief was based on allegations dating back to June of 2018, like I mentioned. So what happened then? I I don't know. There was nothing. There was not a thing, not a concern, not a date, not a nothing from that year, that week, that I mean, if if you go through the transcript, you'll know that there was multiple days that this child alleged that this, this happened. He couldn't peg it down to one particular day, which is, you know, going through the trial is really frustrating to hear because even the police didn't pick up on the fact that he had changed, you know, the, the story um, right in the beginning. Um, so, no, the, the short answer to that is no, there was not anything. Um, so, and, and I will add kind of at this time, I know that it's been portrayed that I was with the school board up until this point, I had left the school board, um, shortly after being at that, that school because of the violence, because of the assaults, because of the lack of support, because of the the work environment, the workplace itself was, 
it, it just didn't feel safe. It didn't feel like I was supported. I was protected. I mean, and, and that has obviously come to fruition all these years later. So how did this go from an accusation in 2018 to an arrest in 2022 to a judge ruling that the sexual assault claim in 2024 was false? I guess the only way I'll give that description is we had to hire an investigator. We had to hire a lawyer. We had to hire people who sought the information that I gave. They were the only people who asked me, who should we speak to? How would we get information that would tell us that this didn't happen? And it, it was the first month that, you know, coworkers of mine happily would have come forward, but were afraid to. You know, they were afraid to lose their jobs. They were afraid that they would get in trouble um, and, and private conversations with our private investigator that we had to pay did all of those things. But then, you know, and, and with the help of Alan, it was put before many people to, to reevaluate this, to to look for more information. And everyone seemingly, I, I don't know, maybe assumed that the investigation was good and thorough and sent it on on its way, which which put us at five days in trial before uh, Justice Peter Tetley. Now here is Jansen's lawyer, Alan Richter. When it comes to situations like these, it's easy to point fingers at the system. Really easy. But overall, he says, if the system is working properly, then this could have been avoided. A proper investigation, absolutely. You would have gone to the school, you would have looked at the room, and you would have seen that there's a, a, a Florida ceiling window, you would have seen that there's no lock on the door. Well, those are aspects to the story that the young person brought out that were factually uh, untrue. And now, when you go back to the transcript, uh, Amanda Rabishaw said in court that she assumed that there was a lock on the door because she used to be a youth officer years before, and it was her understanding that all the doors in schools had locks. But that's how she, she uh, convinced herself that the young person was telling the truth. Absolutely no independent investigation. According to criminal lawyer Joseph Newberger with Newberger and Partners, he also hosts the Not on Record podcast. And Newberger did not represent Jansen in this case, but he says that 90% of his practice involves wrongfully accused individuals, particularly in the sexual assault area. There are many cases, if not most uh, investigations, uh, where the police do not take steps to verify anything that a complainant will say. So if you go back in, in, in sort of time when the Me Too movement started, you'll remember comments uh, coming out from police services and other places that, you know, we believe. And that really is the premise in which uh, investigations start and end from. So, uh, I'm, and I'm not criticizing police. They, they have uh, limited resources but essentially what they do is a complainant comes in and they take a video statement and there may be one or two people who would be relevant, but they do not take other steps to interview in this case, um, other teachers or look into the students records or anything of that nature. Their threshold is whether they have reasonable grounds to lay a charge. And that is simply based on the statement of the complainant. And that is the majority of investigations across Canada, but that's, that's the state of what we have in, for investigation. When it comes to youth complainants, he says, this is treated or should be treated differently, as children might remember things or misremember things in different ways. So the courts have much more leniency in assessing the reasonableness of the evidence of a child complainant. And so in this case, the judge, you know, 
noted a number of important things. Had the police gone to the school, they would have seen that there was no lock on the door. The child was not consistent with respect to the clothing. Some other courts can easily say these types of inconsistencies are really marginal and don't strike to the core of the evidence of the child. And then there's issues here in this case about the behavioral uh, problems that the child had, and this very much could have factored into a motive to fabricate. But again, if you try and get records from a school, the Crown will tell you not available to third-party record. You'll have to go bring your own motion. So here's an access to justice issue. These cases, when, when done properly with lawyers who know what they're doing, cost tens of thousands of dollars. So it is very expensive to fight these things. And at the end of the day, I'm going to wager that not everyone can afford that. And so this represents an access to justice issue, which is another layer to this whole thing in general. But when it comes back to the specific case involving Ashley Jansen, if she could face her accuser, who will be 18 this year, what would she say? I would have nothing to say. I mean, uh, clearly it's a a struggle for mental health and and maybe a a cry for help, but, you know, maybe a, a question of why, but sometimes you know, as I've been in counseling for many, many months now, the the questions that you have as a rational person aren't the answers you'll get from an irrational person. And what's next? I don't know. I mean, I my my family needs me in in a in a way that I haven't been able to give to them in you know seventeen months now. I I'm afraid of a lot of things. I'm afraid of police. I'm afraid of the people that I'm supposed to trust. I mean, it, it's it's been a uphill battle to say the least. And I, I don't know what uh, I'll do next. I mean, right now, what we're asking for is answers. And what we're asking for is that this doesn't happen to somebody else. How do we stop this from happening again? And, and maybe that, that's a far cry from saving the world. But how do we make sure that somebody is accountable? I would just like anybody. There was an opportunity through this whole file for any single person at any one of these tables to ask one more question, and nobody did. Why? Why did nobody think to ask one more question or raise their hand and say, but let's think logically. What, what, logistically, how would this have worked? Not one person did. And where is the accountability? Why is nobody, why do I have to seek help now to remove my criminal record, to remove my fingerprints, to reapply for my passport, to be able to volunteer at my kid's school. I have to fight for all of that stuff now when all of that stuff was ripped from me. The last word on this will come from Joseph Newberger, who, again, didn't represent Jansen. But here's where he might go next. She you know, should have counsel communicate with the media outlets to try and uh, take down or significantly update the the uh, uh, information so that it it reflects the actual decision. Um, Then she'll uh, have uh, some consideration with a lawyer whether she wants to sue the police, um, which will be challenging because they have to show, you know, sort of a malicious prosecution or or gross negligence. And this was where the battle will be. How much do police have to do to verify or not verify? And as I've said to you, that's not their mandate is to verify it. So there is possibly a lawsuit. Now let's talk about children's aid. In Ontario, there are 50 designated children's aid societies. Their declared goal is to promote the best interests, protection, 
and well-being of children. These organizations mean well, of course, but they're not without controversy. It was first established in Toronto in the late 1800s with help from a man named John Joseph Kelso, who apparently was concerned with the number of homeless and impoverished children in the city at the time. But as you'll hear, he also was concerned with animals. With more on that, here is producer Glenn Bergonier. See, what's interesting is you're actually very right, and I want to say just a dash of wrong here, Danny. Let me explain. John Joseph Kelso, who was also known as the children's friend in Canada at the time, did actually bring the Children's Aid Society to Toronto. Yes, but the groundwork was actually laid for him about 15 years beforehand by a completely different group of people. Let me explain so it can make some sense. Back about 149 years ago, a group of concerned women were becoming increasingly aware of children and single mothers growing in the metropolis of Toronto and wanted to help protect these vulnerable citizens. And so they created what was called the Infants Home and Infirmary of Toronto, which would help care for and protect unmarried mothers and children. At the same time that this group had created this organization, John Joseph Kelso was a well-respected and prolific newspaper reporter working for two major Toronto publications at the time, Toronto World and The Globe. He focused a vast majority of his work on pieces centering on the living conditions of those in poverty, with specific interest and focus on how poverty affects children. He quickly made a name for himself as a child's advocate and became somewhat of a public figure. Shortly after attaining this notoriety, Kelso set out to create what was the Toronto Humane Society in 1887. He said that he wanted an organization that can protect both children, which had become a professional passion of his, and animals from cruelty and abandonment. But that actually was not enough for him, and he felt there actually needed to be a specific organization with a very specific focus on children. And so in 1891, the Children's Aid Society of Toronto was officially born, with John Joseph Kelso taking on the role as its inaugural president. Kelso felt that due to the increasing levels of homelessness and orphan children that he was seeing in Toronto, more had to be done to protect them, and so he felt a social safety net was the perfect solution. In 1893, largely influenced by Kelso's work and lobbying, the federal government introduced what was known as the Act for the Prevention of Cruelty to and the Better Protection of Children, which essentially permitted semi-public organizations, such as the Children's Aid Society, to legally care for neglected children. It also stipulated that a shelter is required for municipalities with populations over 10,000 and to allow for guardianship to be transferred from the parents over to the Children's Aid Society. And so for the next uh, 125 years, within Toronto and throughout Canada, under the guidance of John Kelso, the Children's Aid Society continued to grow as an institution. And in 2018, a new law was passed known as the Child, Youth and Family Services Act, which allowed for the age of protection to increase from 16 to 18, keeping vulnerable children safe for an additional two years. And now the Aid Society continues to offer support and aid to the youth with over 5,700 investigations completed last year and also discharging over 200 children and youth back into the care of either direct family or kin. The love and care of John Joseph Kelso and his important work in expanding the Aid Society to other provinces, organizing playgrounds, and his hard influence in the adoption legislation has rightly earned him the title of the children's friend in Canada. Okay then, bit of a heavier episode this week. 
Uh, this podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. I'm Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Chris Dunner and Andrew Dernford are advisors to the show. Join me again next Wednesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week and we'll talk soon. Bye for now.